Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Craig Fairbob. Welcome to the Ocean Protect Podcast. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Well, so, I'm just so excited. <laughs> I'm excited, me. Roger. <laughs> I, I haven't trained this morning because I've been so excited about this chat. I've been, I've been jumping on the internet. We're not talking Ocean Protect, stormwater, <laughs> oceans, nothing. I want to just go straight to Dave Grohl. Straight <laughs> hang on, hang on. Backtrack, backtrack just a little bit. Give it some context. We should I- explain who Craig is. Craig's a very modest individual, but long story short, he's regional regulatory manager at Contech Engineered Solutions. I believe he's calling from swinging Oregon and Portland in the US. Is that correct, Craig? Yeah, that's right. Just outside of Portland, Oregon. Boom, yeah. boom. And look, it has to be said, look, you're an environmental engineer. You've got uh, some uh, fantastic e- expertise and experience in our beloved industry in stormwater. And you are dead set a stormwater rock star, but you are also a genuine rock star. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. You're not the first person to make that joke. Oh, yeah, but... I thought I was being really, uh, you know, original. Brad's no, no, no. <laughs> been up all morning trying to think of that one. <laughs> been saving it up. Sorry, mate. Yeah, I'll but... be saving up. And look, uh, some people, uh, and we have a lot of stormwater engineers and other environmental engineers and, and practitioners listen to our podcast. And they, they might have actually seen Craig on a couple of Ocean Protect webinars. And, and these are very technical, you know, industry-focused webinars. And to give an idea of how technical they are, like one of them is called, this is back in September, bioretention and high-rate biofiltration, research and performance updates from the US. And then his second one was mass capacity, long-term performance and maintenance analysis, biofiltration, stormwater treatment systems. So that sounds very technical. And, and he's got an amazing technical uh, resume. But look, to Jeremy's point, we need to talk about this rock star career. I thought... Brad was jeeing me up. So Brad sends through show notes. <laughs> to be honest, I don't read them a lot of the time, but I did. I clicked on this one and I saw this PowerPoint presentation and I'm like, oh, he's, he's dropped it in the wrong way. <laughs> you know, I'm, like, I'm reading through it. I'm going, ah, oh, mate, this is spam or something. And then, then I read it again and I'm like, Holy shit, that's actually Craig. It's actually Craig. Can you give us an overview of this incredible musical career that you've had? Okay, I'll, I'll, try, I'll try and do the two-minute high-level view. Um, <laughs> gosh, so I, was, I was, so I was born and raised in California, bounced around between San Francisco and L.A. Uh, most of my life. Um, gosh, I think I got my first guitar when I was like 10 or 11 years old. Um, I had to 
begged my folks to get a guitar and they got me, he saw that PowerPoint presentation, Brad, they got me this thing from Toys R Us that ran off a nine volt battery. So it had the speaker in it. It was just crap. Uh, but I think I made noise on that thing for like two years. It never sounded like anything. I think when I was like 12 or 13, I actually got a legit Gibson SG Jr. And that was my first guitar. And it actually sounded like something. It stayed in tune. Um, made a bunch of noise on that thing. Started my own like little high school band with my friends. Um, you know, I was just, you know, in the right place at the right time. There's a really badass punk club in, uh, in, in, uh, Berkeley, California called Gilman street. It's birthed, uh, some, some bands, people, folks, of uh, some bands that folks have probably heard of green day, rancid, all kinds of different bands. Rolled who? <laughs> green, green day. Yeah. But it was, you know, it was, it was this crazy little punk rock club, you know? Um, and you know, there's all these bands just making this amazing music playing to two, 300 people. AFI came out of there as well. You know, played a bunch of shows with with, uh, with my my first little band. Uh, uh, got noticed by some other folks. You know, just made friends with people and uh, started my next band. And we started playing with you know uh, bigger bands and touring around. So, gosh, my next band was called The Forgotten. That was like my punk band. I started with my friends. We did a couple U.S. tours, a couple European tours, actually a bunch. Uh, but that was my first time I went on tour. Was with that band. Um, I think I was maybe like nineteen or twenty. Toured the States a bunch, toured Europe a few times. And that, that was kind of like the really the breakthrough when we started to get to tour Europe. Uh, went across Canada when I started to meet, uh, you know, the Rancid guys are from the Bay Area too. You know, so I started to meet some of those guys. I always describe it as like, it was, a, it was a series of phone calls in my life. One day I got a phone call. I was like, hey, Craig, this is Lars from Rancid. I'm starting a band. You want to be in it? You know, you want to play guitar for us? I was like, holy shit, yes. <laughs> that was like phone call number one. I was like, oh my God. And then like phone call number two was maybe, you know, a year or so later. You know, Tim from Rancid, hey, I'm starting this band. Travis is playing drums. Do you want to play guitar for us? It's like, oh, my God, holy shit, number two. Sorry, sorry, just just pause there for a <laughs> sec. Travis, Travis. Yeah. as in Travis Barker from Blink-182. From Blink-182, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah, so it was Tim from Rancid. He started this band with my friend Rob. They were just, like, doing demo tapes and, and stuff. He had these crazy beats on there trying to mix, you know, hip-hop and punk rock and all this just kind of experimental stuff and they got the best drummer that they could find. And that was Travis. Um, and that was kind of the thing. And they already kind of had the band starting to go and they're like, Hey, we need a guitar player. We're going to bring this to the stage and play live. And they called me and, and uh, that was like mind blown number two. Gosh. And then from there, and I think at that point I was in three different bands at the same time. So I was in my punk band, the forgotten. I played with Lars and the bastards. Um, then I played uh, live with the transplants. I think that someone called me the, uh, the James Brown of punk rock at some point. Uh, that was, <laughs> the hardest working man in show business. Is that what you're referring yeah, to? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and side note, I almost met James Brown. We'll come back to that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I did that. So I was playing all those bands until like oh, somewhere around like 2004, 2005. Um, I moved. I stopped playing in my, my punk band, The Forgotten. Uh, so I was doing The Bastards. I was doing The Transplants. And then I think I started another band, my own band called The Mercy Killers that I sang and fronted for. And I got phone call number three, which was, hey, Mark and Travis from Blink are starting a band and they need a guitar player. Do you want to come audition? Wow. Holy shit. Of course. <laughs> um, you know, drove over there, you know, went to their recording studio, you know, uh, auditioned. Um, I think by the end of the day, uh, yeah, they offered me the gig. And, that, and that, was, that was obviously a really big one, right? All three of them are huge, you know, huge deal for me. Growing up, I mean, I'm just, you know, just this little punk kid from California, you know, grew up listening to all these bands. Um, so it was all, all pretty mind blowing. And then plus 44 did its thing for a while. Um, they went on hiatus. And at that point, I mean, you know, touring around, living in Hollywood, you meet, you know, everybody and then, you know, a lot of different people and all the band scenes and, you know, even some of the, you know, Hollywood 
actors and actresses scenes. It's just another way of saying, you know, when you do that thing, you can start to name drop uh, just about <laughs> your one degree of separation from just about anybody. But I ended up playing, um, uh, got another phone call of uh, Juliet Malix, Juliet Lewis, the actress, uh, has a band and she, and she was uh, actually uh, kind of randomly knew their guitar player and he left and they were looking for another guitar player. And so I ended up doing that too. And that was the last band that I played in. That was around like 2000. 2009 i don't know it was, it was like a decade of like all these bands and touring and traveling just all mashed together unbelievable um, so unbelievable that's the whole chronology you know and, and gosh i mean just to kind of like wrap off the highlights real quick um i mean we played a festival with slayer slayer yeah like wow slayer and iron maiden headline and that's just like ridiculous oh but long story short didn't got to do all kinds of different stuff we played at the snoop dog had a tv show um and transplants played on his tv show and he came up and did a verse with us that's a fun one to google and, and this is the thing i'd encourage everyone because we're going to dive into some stormwater nerdy science and stuff no which no. we, which we no, love no. but but it's worth googling craig because the bands you've just uh, rolled off uh, but what people won't appreciate from uh, this audio is craig was he genuinely looked like a rock star you know mohawk tattoos absolutely shredding it on stage and honestly honestly total rock star it is unbelievable and i didn't know this until after the fact i think mike wicks uh, our boss was like or my boss was like oh you know craig's a former musician so as you do you google him and you're like no way I honestly, I'm still stunned to this day, and and finding out a little bit more, um, it still it still blows my mind. Um, but it's it's and look, I, I, Jeremy's keen to geek out more on the music scene, and, and I am too. But yeah, we're, we're not we're not talking about bar attention <laughs> or anything like that. I mean, we've got a lot of things. So Dave Grohl, I mean, he's all, uh, he's obviously just. You've met the guy, you've played with him. Tell us. Yeah, oh. yeah. No, um, uh, Transplants went on tour with them for three weeks. Um, so I them, think them was, being Foo Fighters, yeah, Foo Fighters, yes, yes, sorry, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Foo Fighters <laughs> for, for for three weeks. Uh, I think we were support. Yeah, I think there was an opening band. I think the guys from Weezer had their own like band, and they were open, and we played second, and then uh, Foo Fighters closed. I think it was. I'm terrible with like band like song names and lyrics and records. So I'm probably gonna get this totally wrong, but I think it was the one by one. I think it's the record. It was on that one. And if you've actually seen like the song where they do the uh, where they shot that video, it's like this big huge arena. That was the first show. Yeah, so we toured with them for three weeks. But you know, I'd, I'd never done an arena tour before that, and so I walked in, and this is big arena thing and it was amazing i was very fortunate to meet a lot of different people in the industry and dave Grohl, hands down was like the most famous like coolest nicest dude you've ever met he was just that 12 year old kid that got to do all these amazing bands and all this amazing stuff he's just loving it so much fun and it was really a blessing to play with them and i i stood on stage and watched them every single night i wasn't even like a huge Foo fighters fan before that obviously love nirvana or whatever but uh yeah i watched them every single night because that guy gives it like three thousand percent Every single narrative is amazing. Serious question because it's very sad, but did you ever get a chance to meet Chris Cornell? I did not. No. Oh, Huge Soundgarden goodness. fan, yeah, but did not get to meet Chris Cornell. One of my biggest, uh, not a fan of tooting my own horn, but here I go. Do it. Do it. <laughs> he admitted it actually. I have several uh, horns I can take. Did you get to meet? Um, um, I don't know if you're an Alice in Chains fan. Uh, I was a huge Alice in Chains fan growing up, and uh, Jerry Cantrell, their guitar player specifically, I loved. He was one of my favorite guitar players. 
playing with the Juliet and the Licks, we actually played the Viper Room in LA and Jerry Cantrell was there. And I remember after the show, he came up to us and was like, he came up to me. He's like, hey man, that was a great show. You really kicked ass. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask a few pop questions. You're a, you know, been in the music industry for a long time, have a, a great appreciation for music. I know you got a Johnny Cash tattoo on your uh, neckline, I can see, but. Uh... <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know the answer to this. I know the answer to this. And I'll give it to you, Brad. You've got a face for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to do this with pop questions. So, so number it. one, number one, favorite band of all time. Oh, gosh. Favorite band of all time. I can't pick one. If you had to. If I, if I had to pick one, I'd probably say The Clash. The Clash. Favorite album of all time. Oh, God. This is tough, Brad. I listen to a lot <laughs> of different music, man. Like, I can't just pick. Oh, so you're talking like Desert Island album. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'd pick something way more mellow. Oh, gosh. I don't even know. This is going to the ocean fraternity, so you won't be judged. <laughs> you could say anything, really. Favorite record? God, there's so many. I don't know. Like, for metal, I'd definitely say Rain and Blood Slayer is my favorite. Wow. Hands down. Okay. Best drama of all time. Best drummer of all time? Um, I will give it to Travis. No problem. <laughs> uh, actually, on, on Travis, uh, I, like I listened to a podcast on uh, a chat with him, and it, like the, his dedication to his music is unbelievable. He was telling me a uh, training still to this day, I guess, practices eight hours a day. An incredible person, and hashtag Plant Power. He's vegan and is doing all right on the ladies' uh, front as well, I believe. So with the card. So, so, so is that why you're vegan? Right? <laughs> Damn, like Travis Parker. No, best guitarist of all time, Craig. Oh, best guitarist of all time. Man, you're really grilling me right now. I want to hear, because everyone says Clapton or Hendrix, but I actually, I, I'm sure there's someone not, not appreciated. Well, you know, it, it's tough, you know, because I like, like, crappy punk rock, like, rolling around in the blood and the <laughs> blast, you know? So, like, stuff I, you know, like, I'd probably give a shout-out, uh, Jock from GBH, uh, wow. one, of, one of my favorite bands, yeah, or uh, Tez from Discharge. Um, I, I love all the old punk rock stuff. That's my favorite stuff. Best vocalist and or podcast host. <laughs> <laughs> Good what you say here, Craig. Brad. I had Brad. We'll move on. Singers are a little bit easier for me. Um, I love Sam Cooke. He's one of my favorites. Freddie Mercury, obviously. Like, if you're going for, like, range, like, he's the best. Yeah. And Nina Simone, that's my third. Yeah. And last one, is there any key myths about being a rock star that you really just think should be dispelled? Like, it looks glamorous and so awesome. What are some key myths around this? Oh, yeah, God. see, I've, I've got a list of questions that will not be too many for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, laundry is really difficult. Unless you get, like, a personal assistant who's doing your laundry and you're really fancy like that, like, you don't got no laundry room and washer and dryer. Like, you're living on a bus and you're going from place to place. Yeah. That was always yeah. a struggle for me. And then... You know, I sweat like mad and ruin all my clothes every single show. So th that was always a pain in the ass for me. It, it, it wasn't exciting. I was wet and stinky all the time. <laughs> Not glamorous at all. But in all seriousness, like, was it an amazing experience or was it tough or or both or everything? Yeah, there's there's some challenges. You know, everyone's seen those behind the music things and all that stuff and whatever. And obviously, it gets weird when you start throwing money and people's livelihood in it. But I mean, other than that, I mean, I think one of my friends said it best. I mean, what other job do you have? You know, it's technically kind of a job or a thing that you do where where your boss stands up and applauds for you every three minutes. You know, I mean, it's it's amazing. You know, you basically roll into a place and you have. Um, you know, basically a giant party and a bunch of friends to hang out with, and and you're just you know just get to play music and hang out with people. 
you know, I, I know a lot of people be like, oh, it's hard and all these things. I, I don't buy that. It, it was it was a blast. It was totally awesome. You know, yeah, you have to put in hard work, uh, you know. Yeah, obviously. It was all fun in my mind. Even the like 14 hour like van rides with dudes laying on top of each other, you know, you're hungover. You know, all you want to do is crawl in a hole and sleep. Um, that stuff was even still fun. So the question is obviously the biggest question is so were you sort of during those long 14 hour bus rides, were you putting your, your head in the books and learning about <laughs> yeah. uh, becoming an environmental engineer? How does it all come together? <laughs> How does this all happen? Just, just to be very clear, I said van ride. So, a uh, majority of, you know, when I played in, you know, all punk rock bands, I mean, we were in a van. You know, I think my first US tour, it was like 10 dudes in one van, and then all the equipment was in the trailer. Um, and that is not cute when you're going through like Texas and 115 degrees in the South. So that is, that is a very different, just distinct difference from like touring with, you know, uh, you know, transplants or, you know, the, the blink guys in a bus. Okay, I'll rephrase the question. <laughs> when, when you're on the 40 now van, <laughs> were you an environmental engineer there? Give us a backstory of no. Okay. Were you up on stage thinking, fire attention? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know what the fucking engineer was. Wow. Uh, to be honest, you know, wow. What is an engineer? I'd be like, railroads? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> In all seriousness, how does this transition occur? Like, how, you said your last band was Juliet Lewis and the Licks. So, when do you start thinking, I'm going to change? I met my wife. I got married. Um, you know, had 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 an instant family, you know, stepkids, you know. And so, at that point, it was kind of a organic thing you know i'd kind of done everything i wanted to do i'd been on the road for like 10 years making records doing all this stuff um i had a new family the economy crash it was right when the economy crashed when i stopped playing music and decided to start a family so it was kind of like a oh shit i'm not playing music anymore the economy just crashed i better figure out something and so i think it was just a couple years of like okay you know what i want i worked construction for a while i've always had a background in construction and uh, contracting since I was a kid. Um, so that's, that was always helpful, uh, being a musician and having that to kind of fill the gaps. But, you know, I think at that point it was just like, I, you know, I got to find something that I, I like to do where, you know, I won't kill myself because I hate, you know, nine to fives and white collar, all that stuff. You know, that's why I played bands in the first place because I don't like that stuff. You know, it, it just kind of came together for me. Like I've always been a math nerd. I love math. I don't know why my brain just loves math. I love science. Um, you know, I'm a water guy too. I love fish. I always have like five or six aquariums going, um, you know, like everybody else, you know, love the ocean. Um, and just kind of started learning, you know, was looking about, you know, I was like, Oh, maybe I'll be a firefighter. Maybe I'll be a doctor, all these different things, you know? And then my wife, uh, she's give her, give her all the credit for this. Um, you know, she figured out this thing. She's like, what's this thing? Hydrology. What is this environmental engineering? What is, what is all this business? You know, and started looking at it. And then the more I read about it, I was like, Oh my God, this shit is made for me. You know, like I've always been passionate. You know, I, I, I played music in the first place. I always wanted to, you know, yeah, it's fun. And, you know, it's all, all, all that part of it, you know, but I always, you know, punk rock, you know, I always want to do it for, uh, do something good, you know, give back. And so that, you know, that was always really important to me playing music. And so seeing that there was a way where I could still, you know, like improve people's lives, you know, protect people in the environment and make a living out of it. That was like awesome to me. I think I picked up pre-calculus for dummies. Uh, I think it was my first time. <laughs> I picked that up. I cruised through. It was like, all right, I still got this shit. You know, I was like 30 years old, 31, 32. Took uh, my first class. I took calculus. Went straight into calculus. And, and it was a trip, too, because I think I, saw, I, think I was taking a cl that class. There was a high school student from my old high school who was just like a genius and taking college calculus. And that was really weird. They're like, 
aren't you Craig? Like, yeah, Oculus. <laughs> How's it going? You know, really landed on environmental engineering because really passionate about the environment, you know, like most people, you know, obviously really concerned about climate change. And, you know, uh, like most folks have been paying attention for 20 years that the world's slowly grinding to a pretty uncomfortable place. Uh, and wanted to do something about it, you know, wanted to throw myself into it. Environmental engineering just seemed like something I'd really enjoy, you know, make a difference and uh, something I can make a living doing, too. And I just checked all the boxes, you know, and I was, I was in the Bay Area at the time. And only two universities there offering environmental engineering were Stanford and Berkeley, which, if you guys aren't familiar, are like the most like, prestigious. prestigious yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. I wasn't going to either of those. You know, Portland State and Oregon, you know, really liked Oregon. Just kind of the rest was history. Right. Learned about stormwater, found out about this thing called stormwater. was like, oh, my gosh, like this is kind of the lowest hanging fruit. This is one of the biggest problems that people aren't doing anything about. Wow. That's it. So, no, Jeremy, I wasn't like, wasn't pounding a bottle of Jameson with my, you know, <laughs> transport textbook in the other hand. So, 14 years later, so 2008, you go down your journey, must take you a couple of years to, to, to become an environmental engineer. So, you got that. Then, how did you end up here? I mean, how long have you been with, with Contact for? Um, gosh. So, I started interning with Contact before I was even done with my degree. So, I was a senior. Then, when I graduated, um, I went to work for them as a design engineer, started my master's right away as well. So I was kind of dipping my toes in a, in a bunch of different things. I was also really interested in development engineering. I did some work with Engineers Without Borders out in Ethiopia. I went out there twice and we helped build um, some latrines and a, a school uh, for a K through eight school for like a thousand kids there. I looked into that for a minute and decided, you know what, I'm going to stick with the stormwater thing. I think after I was a design engineer, I got into the kind of the regulatory world, uh, I think after about four or five years. And politics is shit now, uh, but I enjoy political science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, I enjoy the Rubik's Cube and the chess that is politics and kind of the pragmatism of, you know, making things happen. Um, and so kind of got involved in the regulatory regulatory world. Um, and as you guys probably know, you know, there's not a lot of actual technical knowledge in the regulatory world. So it's kind of nice to, to come come to that angle from a, being an engineer. You know, it's like, oh, man, this is easy. You guys aren't, aren't doing anything right. Uh, let's, uh, yeah. <laughs> let's, use, let's use some very simple, uh, you know, uh, science and math principles and engineering principles. And uh, let's see what we can get done here. Um, and, and here I am, you know, so I was regulatory associate, I think, for a year or two and then full on regulatory manager. You know, so I work with I think Brad and I were t- chatting about this before this. So I work with like state and municipal agencies on their permits, you know, commenting on permits, their stormwater manuals, um, obviously getting, you know, context systems approved. But uh, just helping out with stormwater quality across the board in all of those states. Because as you guys know, um, it's really a fledgling industry in a lot of places. Yeah, it's interesting. Like Craig and I were talking before Jeremy jumped on and it seems like we both have, whilst we have very different career paths to get to our respective journeys, we actually do more or less the same thing, but just Craig's in uh, US and I'm in Australia. And one's actually a rock star and one <laughs> <laughs> That's very different. Oh, look, my uh, hairbrush in the mirror in the bathroom uh, gets uh, a lot of use. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, to, to Brad's credit, he's got a lovely lock of, he's got a lovely head of hair. Um, <laughs> I'm like 112 in punk rock years, so I'm part of the bald beard club, you know, that whole combo. So. I need to ask, was that one of the catalysts when you're sort of deciding what to do in terms of your musical career? You're like, if I'm losing my hair, I, I can't do the mohawk anymore. So basically, the, the writing's on the wall and I need to either rock a beanie or just retire and become an engineer. Is that how it works? That's a good question. No, it just it just kind of happened that way. I think I, I think I know this to my kids more than, uh, than anything else. 
I, uh, to, to be clear, Brad, I had hair when I stopped playing. <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. Good to know. Good to know. Look, whilst we have sort of similar uh, roles and jobs, but just in different countries, I'm keen to actually get Craig's perspective on what stormwater management is like in the US. Obviously, you're, you're in this regulatory manager role, dealing with all these different uh, local governments, state governments, providing advice, trying to build their capacity to sort of better understand the issue of stormwater and what we can actually do to better manage it. But I'm just keen to get your perspective of what is essentially stormwater management like in the US? Gosh, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a huge question, right? The first thing that comes to mind is fragmented. You know, you have, I mean, there's 50 states. The United States is kind of fragmented in general, right? I mean, it's really like multiple countries, um, especially right now, right? We won't get into that. You have these select areas that kind of have um, kind of more the drivers to do something about stormwater quality. So specifically thinking about like the Pacific Northwest where I am and Seattle and Puget Sound, you know, you have direct, you know, there's freaking like orcas dying and die offs, you know, um, you know, and, and terrible water quality problems that were happening, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And so I, I think places like that on the East Coast, kind of Baltimore, Maryland, uh, the Northeast, those places kind of saw the impacts, I think, faster than everywhere else. And so kind of uh, accordingly kind of had you know more funding or able to get public support and kind of get their programs off the ground and kind of uh, be leaders in the stormwater field and kind of setting up the most awesome programs. You know, Brad, is you know, I've talked about ad nauseum, you know, about the Tate program in Washington, you know, most robust verification program, yada, yada. But then you have places in the middle of the country where it's like it might as well, you know, no knock to be careful here. I don't, I don't want to knock programs. But I mean, I, I think a lot of these programs would say it themselves too, where they're, you know, they're 10, 15 years behind um, these, these coastal areas that have made things and kind of, and kind of figured things out, you know? And so I'd say it's really fragmented. You know, I, I, I think it's obviously a huge problem. Um, you know, I don't have the stats in front of me. I usually uh, whittle this stuff off the top of my head, but technically I'm on vacation, Brad. So, so uh, stormwater is out of my mind. I think it's the largest, largest source of surface water pollution in the United States, or at least the only one that's growing is urban stormwater, you know? So, you know, so some places on the coast are doing are doing a great job. They have robust stormwater programs. Um, there's a lot of places that that um, that don't have robust stormwater programs. So, um, you know, but to their to their point, though, you know, I kind of work with a lot of these agencies and I try and see things from their perspective. Like a lot of uh, environmental issues, you know, there's not a lot of funding. You know, so they have this massive problem. You know, they've got a couple coins in their pocket to be able to deal with it. They've got they're understaffed. You know, and they're trying to do the best they can to uh, you know protect people and and, and aquatic health. Um, and it's tough. You know, so I think that's where, you know, it's kind of a really niche application that we get to fill, uh, you know, being in the industry and people that make this stuff, make treatment systems, um, you know, they're experts in this stuff. We can kind of lend our expertise, um, you know, to some of these folks and help them uh, with their stormwater programs. It's funny. I mean, I know a little bit about the U.S. regulatory environment. And, you know, when such a large proportion of the population is in states that are landlocked, they don't necessarily see the benefits. I mean, if you're on the West Coast there and, and you get all the people and those orcas are dying, but then these are the people that spend all the time in the water, in the ocean. If you go inland to Cincinnati, yep. you know, next to the head office, you're like, well, where do people get to see the benefits of not polluting, of adequately treating your stormwater? And I sort of wonder if, if that's, you know, does that line up with regulatory sort of... I think you need it on the head, Jeremy. That is a big, huge component. You know, you have Puget Sound, you know, uh, people there connected to the, you know, the salmon there. California, I mean, they're the only place in the country that has, that regulates trash. They have a statewide trash TMDL. And that's because exactly as you said, people like to go on the ocean there and they're going swimming, you know, they, they, you know, they're going surfing, you know, they see a bunch of trash and a bunch of crap in the ocean and, and it's upsetting, you know, so I think, yeah, getting the public support and getting, uh, getting the funds to be able to deal with it 
yeah, it's critical. I mean, they got they have a, a Measure W was passed in Los Angeles. I think they have three million dollars a year now just to de- dedicate strictly to to stormwater. Um, and that's you know it's one city. Uh, but as you said, you know, places in the middle of the country, yeah, they don't see those effects, you know, as much. And you say that though because I mean, obviously, as as you know, engineers, we kind of know that everything's connected, right? And one of the interesting things that we've always we've been keeping an eye on uh, from a regulatory perspective, uh, how I always say. All I want for Christmas is a Mississippi River TMDL because the Mississippi River tributaries cover like almost like half the country, probably even more than that, like two thirds of the country. You know, so it's just to say that, you know, um, I work with folks in Minnesota and Colorado, you know, two different parts of the country. They both are tributaries to the Mississippi River, which guess what? Dumps out into the uh, the Gulf of Mexico and there's a huge freaking dead zone there that kills, you know, all the quad. You know, so this stuff is all totally interconnected. And to your point, yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough to tell someone, you know, in, in Kansas, you know, hey, we're killing all this aquatic life, you know, a thousand miles downriver. Um, we're going to charge you an extra 10 bucks on your water bill to take care of stormwater. That's a tough conversation, you know, you know, but I, th- I think people are, are starting to get more hip to it, though, as, as education gets out there, you know, folks like Ocean Protect do the good work, you know, and, and people do even in landlocked areas, you know, people still uh, have an appreciation for water, you know, they're going vacationing to lakes and rivers and these places places. And, you know, if they're going to their favorite fishing hole and there's no goddamn fish, that's a problem. Just to define a couple of terms, so you mentioned TMDL, so that's total maximum daily load. Uh, and you mentioned that California, like, they, yeah, they have a TMDL, total maximum daily load for litter. So they've essentially, we've talked about this before with Jim Lenhart and others around a, a TMDL target of zero trash to waterways in the state of California by 2030. And that's something we've basically used as a basis for advocating for a zero litter to ocean target. We're for Australian waterways. If you want to know more about that, just don't jump on zerolitteredocean.com.au. Find out all the information, but a whole bunch of councils have actually committed to that target, including just recently, I think last week, George's River, which is a major waterway in, in Sydney. Uh, they've committed to a zero litter to river target, which is fantastic. You mentioned Puget Sound. We we had a chat with Dr. Ed Kay uh, from University of Washington talking about you know the, the coho salmon dying en masse there as a result of uh, a chemical 6-PPD within car tyres, which has just basically been washed off, our, our, off the roads uh, into the Puget Sound and basically killing these meter-long fish en masse. People protect uh, what they know about and are connected to. And yeah, with that reduced connection in landlocked areas, that uh, I guess awareness and, uh, and care, economic sort of focus is is reduced. Uh, having said that, you know, some of the US has got some of the best lakes in the world, you know, the Great Lakes area in the north, Northeast, for example. A lot of people certainly appreciate the need to protect those and other waterways. Yeah, I'd say the middle of the country too, they might not be as focused on water quality, um, but to your point, Jeremy, they're definitely feeling the effects of climate change and rainfall and flooding. You know, there's definitely a ton of flooding issues in the middle of the country. So it might not be a water quality issue, but I think people, unfortunately, you know, there's starting to be more and more uh, natural disasters due to, just due to flooding. It's sort of in the last year, it's flooding everywhere. You look at the the atrocity that's happened in Pakistan at the moment, They, I, I think uh, nearly a third of the country is going to be flooded. Uh, it just seems to be flooding everywhere. In, in Australia, I think we're going into our, our next El Nino weather pattern. So it'll be the third weather pattern. And, and, and gee, Australia is just damp. It's, it's saturated, all the rivers, all the soils. And if we have another um, spring and, and summer of so much rain, again, it's going to be flooding. And I guess it's tying that link, quite interesting, from flooding and stormwater, like, well, it's all a part of climate change, you know, why is it flooding? So it's good that at least people in the States are going, well, these natural disasters are happening. Well, why? 
and it's up to you know people like us and the, and the show and and is to is to educate people and get people like yourself to come on board and tell us some truth bombs. So, um, <laughs> I mean, that's that's a good lead. So, what are you currently doing at Content? Before I answer that, just really quickly, I want I wanted to say, you know, when I when I was younger and even when I was into music and all this stuff, you know, what I mean, punk rock, you know, it's all you know, fuck the system, fuck the government, you know, all this stuff. And so, the problems with urban decay and that stuff that that wasn't a uh, a mystery to me, you know, and I think, you know, just kind of understanding, you know, pollution and kind of seeing, learning more about climate change when I was younger. I think one of the things that really drove me to an environmental engineering degree was just to put it very bluntly, it's going to get fucked up around here in the next couple of decades. Yeah. I am not going to be caught sitting here, you know, like, Oh, you know, no knock to other people, but you know, like I, I want to be in the middle of it and be a part of the solution and not part of the problem. Big For me was like, I want to do something about this. I don't want to sit around and, oh, I read an article in the New York Times. That sucks that, you know, the ocean's going to collapse in 15 years. Whatever. I'm going to get a Big Mac. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, no. Yeah, yeah. That. That's, that's really yeah. interesting you say that because I, I know there's a really strong connection between the punk rock uh, you know, industry and, and I guess just people in general and sort of really strong awareness around various environmental issues. Like there's a really strong link between punk rock and, and the vegan straight edge community, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I've got some mates with a way more tattoos than you, Craig, that are very much uh, that, including shout out Matt Grills. He's a podcast listener, former guest. He's a former punk rock lead singer and is a hardcore vegan as well. But there's, for, to your point around being part of the solution, you know, as opposed to just sort of F the system, whatever, um, being part of that solution. And I'm sure as part of your environmental engineering degree, you get, you get, well, I guess, a greater awareness of the various issues facing the planet and what we can physically do about it. And there's a growing awareness of, or growing desire for people to be wanting to be part of that solution. Just recently, there was a, a lady who's got a little bit of media attention by because she quit uh, the Murdoch or, or News Limited because she was really concerned around the fact that you know News Limited were sort of, I guess, laying a very large portion of the blame of the bushfires within Australia on arsons. And the, basically, the stats, the science just didn't support that at all. And it was fundamentally very strong link, very strong link to climate change. So she was basically saying, "Look, I'm I'm not I'm not part of this company anymore." And because and the reason is because I need to be part of, you know, doing something about climate change, not sort of proliferating this message that it's caused by something else. So, and I guess in the last probably 10 years since your, or so since your degree, you've probably seen ramifications of all these, uh, you know, climate change, um, scenarios come to reality. Now we, I'm sure it's the same for you. We learned about extra, more extreme weather patterns, floods, droughts, uh, et cetera, ocean dead zones. And we're basically seeing this right now, aren't we? Yeah, it's, 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 it's really far out to see, you know, I mean, seeing just kind of the predictions and just kind of watching things unfold in real time, right? I mean, the fires here, for, for instance, you know, like, you know, we know that we're gonna be having more fires, but it's a lot different story, knowing that and reading about it 10 or 15 years ago, than walking out my front door, skies are red, and we have worse air quality than uh, some parts of China, it's like 500, million. you know, what I mean, so there's some really, it's scary seeing that stuff unfold real time. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's not good. To your point, though, about, you know, I think communication in science and just kind of communicating climate change, it's a tough thing to communicate. I mean, it's a very technical, long-term um, topic, you know, and even I almost I almost interrupted Jeremy when he was talking about flooding in the middle of the country, you know, and, and, uh, and you know, he said it's due to climate change. Is that a piece of it? Absolutely. You know, but are there other pieces to it? Yeah, you know, we have terrible infrastructure too, you know, so there are other things, you know, so I think it's, it's just really a shame, I think, that the environment got politicized, you know, and 
it's just, it's really weird. It's like politicizing gravity or something. Like yeah, that, right? yeah. It just doesn't make no gravity, you know, accelerates at 9.81 meters per second squared. That's just what it does. Climate change is kind of the same thing, right? Like we can measure carbon dioxide. We can see all these effects. We have all this really sophisticated modeling we can do to understand it, you know, but it's, it's tough to communicate that. And ever since it got politicized, you know, I, I hate to be negative Nancy, but it's, it's really tough to get people, I think, on board, you know, with what is essentially the fight of our lives, you know, to, Secure our planet and protect it. But to the point you made before around stormwater, like back in your university days, you're saying stormwater is like the low hanging fruit. It's not particularly complicated, or, or uh, as as maybe climate change may appear. It's a very straightforward thing to potentially see and feel and recognise the, the uh, deficiencies in it. So I'm just keen to get sort of your uh, initial sort of impressions of stormwater, particularly when you're coming out and learning more about it. You know, like you're saying, it's low hanging fruit. What what was sort of the low yeah, hanging low fruit? Hanging fruit. It's low hanging fruit. A little bit more background. So I was uh, so my original. My under, I did an undergraduate honors thesis on second characterizing secondary organic aerosols. So I got really into the climate change uh, world. Uh, my professor uh, or worked with a research group, uh, Dr. Pankow, super famous guy. I think he developed like the partitioning coefficient for aerosols. Um, so like majorly famous guy, uh, went to Cal Poly in like the 70s in L.A. So he's like major air quality climate guy. Um, so I went went down that rabbit hole uh, pretty thoroughly uh, or at least got a peek behind the curtain, uh, you know, into that domain before I did stormwater. Um, but the low-hanging fruit, you know, so, so I bring up all that stuff and like aerosol science and like atmospheric um, chemistry and dynamics. I mean, the fluid dynamics, that stuff is complex. And stormwater, I, I say it's low-hanging fruit because we know a lot about water treatment. You know, we've had wastewater treatment and drinking water treatment plants for decades, you know, centuries. You know, I mean, heck, the Romans were doing this stuff. So we know a lot about water and wastewater treatment, the technology and how to remove pollution from water, how to characterize it, you know, up and down, you know, six ways till Sunday. And so it's it's not that stuff that we that's hard to understand i think and so and so what to do about the problem like we already know how to solve it the the, the kind of the, the tough part is more it is more of a political one you know is, is getting the will and the funding to be able to you know to do something about it um and i, I say it's low-hanging fruit you know because we do have the technology to be able to, to be able to solve this problem it's just a matter of you know, getting people on board um i, I will scale it back a little bit though because one thing that's really complex about stormwater that i'm writing about in our our book for the Environmental Water Resources Institute Stormwater Media Filtration Committee. Which is a side note, Craig, I am I am promising to review that as well and provide comments. I ha- it is on my list of things to do. I've seen a couple of the chapters already. I am going to review them, I promise. I appreciate that. Yeah, we, we can use all the feedback and help we can get. We know what to do. But the, the part that is challenging, though, is, is wastewater and water treatment plants. Um, you know, they have all these automated systems. They have these big, giant plants, right? And, and operators, um, you know, so it's very predictable. And as you guys know, stormwater is not predictable. You know, you cannot predict the inputs for, you know, a 100 hectare drainage area and understand how all those pollutants are going to pass through the pipe network and change over time before they get to oceans and rivers. You know, it's, it's really tough to predict it and have to do it all on a shoestring budget and have it be maintainable. You know, you're essentially creating these little mini wastewater and water treatment plants, right? And so to be able to do that effectively, design them and build them, you know, knowing, you know, that people are going to have a, a problem and challenges maintaining them and how, you know, be resource limited, you know, that that is the hard part. So that's where I say it's low hanging fruit. From an engineering perspective, technically, you know, we know how to solve a lot of these problems. It's just how to solve it um, in a resource limited way and, uh, and, and get people on board, you know? 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Brad and I were chatting yesterday and Look, it's, it's, it's roughly known, the figures, around 80% of the pollution that's in our ocean comes from land-based sources, and the majority of that is coming via the stormwater network. Just common sense. If we know 80% of the problem is coming from stormwater, why is not 80% of our focus on that and 80% of our funding on that? Because, let's face it, there's far more um, focus and funding on mopping up the problem um, you know, out in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Um, you know, if we had 80% of the funding on stormwater, we'd be doing a bloody good job. We, 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 would, we would be stopping this at the source straight away. And I just want to understand from your point of view in America, why is it that stormwater is the, the, the bad cousin to wastewater? Why is it that we are just, you know, out of sight, out of mind? It's, it's so tough. You know, it comes back to, I think, communication and science. You know, it's really difficult communicating this stuff to the public, you know, and especially communicating. I mean, communicating it when there's all these other problems, too. You know, I mean, you know, as much as water quality is, is a problem, you know, you have things, you know, political problems, COVID, climate change, flooding, fires. You, know, you have all these other problems. You know, it's really hard, I think, to galvanize people. Um, around one issue, and, and it's hard. To, and I think you said it really well, Jeremy. That uh, you know, if if we we're if we we're treating it at the source, it's a lot easier to remove pollution in a rain garden versus go and try and pull it out of a river um, downstream. It's just not happening, you know, as, as you said. And, and I, I'd, I'd say it's similar here in the United States. You know, we have we spend tons of money on the TMDL program, the Total Maximum Daily Load. Uh, program uh, that, that Brad mentioned, um, which is kind of our framework for, you know, identifying impaired waters. They go on the 303D list of the Clean Water Act, you know, for whatever they're impaired for. And then they go through this big, long process. That usually it can take like a decade, uh, sometimes longer. I know there's TMDLs out there uh, in Oregon uh, where they identified this water was fucked up 25 years ago. They just haven't got to it yet. Sorry. But still, that's where a lot of the focus is on. Um, I, I don't know. That's a million dollar question, Jeremy. Um, if you could solve that one for me. I think it is public awareness, you know, but and getting people to support it and gets into politics. Right. And politics is a total shit show no matter where you are. You know, so back to back to punk rock. Um. <laughs> I'll say this. I think 
plastic pollution has been one of the best things for the stormwater industry as far as plastic awareness. You know, in the last five, ten years, YouTube, straws and turtles' noses, people have become aware of that pollutant called plastic. Now, if we go back 20 years, it's ocean protect, you know, plastic, whatever, we're out sediment and heavy metals and stuff. And uh, I recently listened to a presentation that Mike Hanna from Enviropod put on over in the United States. And he mentioned something, he said something that really stuck in my mind. If we can't manage trash, which is physical, we can see it, then what's the hope for managing other pollutants? And my question is to, to you. I mean, since trash has been out, you know, like the public um, mines, you know, you look at California and the total uh, TMDLs there and what's happening. Have you seen an increase in awareness because of trash? Have you seen um, an opportunity to, to jump into a conversation to go, oh, just as much as there's trash, there are these other pollutants coming down the water. Have you seen a positive impact because of that? That is tough. And I will say that I take a page straight out of my Canada's playbook. Um, and whenever I talk with regulators and folks about stormwater, I always try and uh, get them to put some trash uh, in their manuals, in their permits. Because um, I, I, I agree with Mike, um, just learning about all this stuff and going, oh, wow, this is great. We're regulating total suspended solids as kind of a surrogate for all these other dissolved nutrients and metals and all these all these things the fucking paper cup and the fucking yeah. <laughs> you know all this trash that people are throwing down the streets like why aren't we regulating that um i think it's i think it's just insane to be honest it's kind of the easiest one talk about low-hanging fruit um it's you know trash capture is probably the easiest thing for us to do and everyone's worried about microplastics in the ocean it, I, I was, well ha, ha, macro becomes micro so yeah, stop it, the macro and I, I was just going to say, you know, I, I think a lot of it is, is that communication thing. You know, it's, it's, if people see, you know, a turtle with a straw on its nose, you know, it tugs on their heartstrings, get emotional. Okay, yeah, we'll support trash control. Um, but I think microplastics is almost kind of <laughs> it's almost like a gateway. It's a gateway pollutant, yeah. right? <laughs> to kind of get people to care about trash, you know, because when people start to understand, you know, there's heck, there's microplastics in us sitting here right now. You know, there's microplastics in Antarctica. Like it's everywhere, literally. Um, you know, and obviously pollutants kind of hitchhike on that, uh, you know, it can be cancerous, all these different things. I, I think I'm hoping that that will be kind of a driver um, to get folks to care about trash and regulations. And, ju and just to be clear here, um, why I work in, in regulatory is because it's all about the regs. Every single person I talk to who works at every single agency, they're like, I agree with you. Trash is a problem. We should be targeting that first and we should be doing everything. However, the regulations are yeah. yeah. capturing. Yeah. We just need to check this box um, so you know we can still get funding from the federal government and they don't sue us, uh, you know, et cetera. You know, so microplastics would be a classic example. Like what there's no after the best of my knowledge, there's no real consistently applied methodology for even measuring microplastics. So how do we sort of go about uh, maybe maybe that's what Craig's working on, is it? Is that what you're gonna tell me? Actually there, there is there is a section of microplastics oh. in our book. Uh, we will even be talking uh, we will even be talking, I dug up a couple of papers on analytical methods for microplastics in stormwater. That's we are, great there idea. is a small section. It sounds like you just signed yourself up to help us out. I, that I, 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 I certainly did. And it's it's interesting. Like you you tell you you mentioned it's all about communication and science, and I completely agree. And I, I honestly think we need to take a take a page out of the playbook of the the, the influential people on the planet. Yeah, you know, we mentioned Travis Barker. His wife is a, is what Courtney Kardashian. There's no more influential group of uh, people than the Kardashians, I'd, I'd argue. And what do they do? That they actually tell their story effectively. Really, like you know, their, their story might be a bit of a bit of comic relief for a lot of people, but the reality is they are highly influential. And it's, for my mind, it's about telling your story on 
multiple different mediums in a in a in a in a, in a format that people are going to uh, take in, understand, etc. And to be honest, that's the idea of this podcast. You know, we're trying to lift the profile and gain more awareness around stormwater, particularly the p- problem. And what we can physically do about it. And look, we're a very small part of that communication strategy. And I, I feel as though that the, the whole industry just needs to pull up its socks and actually do a better job. I'll give you an example. So I was at the Australian Marine Science Association conference in Cairns a couple of weeks ago, and there would have been eight talks about microplastics and, you know, about, oh, you know, impacting microbiota or, or fish or whatever. And I got up and just talked about where it's coming from. And I was the only one, and and to the best of my knowledge, it was the first talk in all their Australian Marine Science Association sort of conferences I've had that they've had about stormwater. The room was packed. Everyone's just like, I can't believe it. You know, six PPD and car car tires had no idea. Never even heard of the zero uh, zero trash to waterways target by California. You know, and and you you tell them about how councils and other sort of uh, owners of these stormwater treatment assets don't remove the hazardous plastic waste out of these assets they are staggered and for, so again it's about for my for my mind telling that story trying to imp- increase the profile of the the messages or the message and trying to do something and basically tr- using that to drive change Absolutely, Brad, you know, and, and I've said it and I'll, I'll say it till I'm blue in the face, you know, like hats off to what you guys do, because I think this is exactly what's needed. And you said it perfect. You know, I mean, we need a, an activism, you'd call it above ground and below ground, right? Um, you know, we need the communication side of it to get people to, to, to care about this stuff. And then we have to have people that are actually working on the regs too, uh, to make sure that's done right, you know, um, but I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, when you tell people about stormwater, and what's actually happening, and that we're just like literally washing our urban decay and just dumping it in the oceans and rivers. People are floored. You know, they, they, they are totally floored. And I think if more people knew exactly what was happening and how little, you know, um, Jeremy, as you said, you know, how little resources we're throwing at how large of a problem this is, things would change uh, pretty quickly. At least you like to hope so. That's interesting. You know, you just said that. So how, how do we attract more attention to stormwater? I mean, that, 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 that's really the key is because, because it's below ground, out of sight, out of mind. We understand that. But even when we tell people, they're flabbergasted. Like, you know, you, Brad, you, Craig, we all tell people. But then the people within municipalities or councils have got the biggest problem. They tend to shy away from it. I mean, are we doing something fundamentally wrong? For instance, maintenance. I mean, let's stop calling the word maintenance. Contact call it, Ocean Protect, we call it maintenance. It's not. It's We're, we're removing waste. We, we should call it waste removal. Maintenance is when you're fixing up a road and doing a pothole. It'll keep going. <laughs> That's a good point. You know, we, we've got to change our rhetoric on the way we communicate it because even when people think of the word maintenance, they go, oh, well, she'll be right. It'll keep working. But it's actually not what we're doing. When we go out to a, a gross pollutant trap and remove three tonne of waste, well, Let's call it for what it is. So as an industry, how do we shine light on it and actually get people to to make change at a regulatory level? Because let's face it, people ain't going to clean out their storm filters until they're told to. Absolutely. They're not. So from your point of view, what, what's what's waste removal like in the United States? And what are your thoughts on what I've just said and, and how to attract uh, more decision making at the right level. I, I think you nailed it, and thanks for bringing that up. Um, you know, maintenance is obviously the next frontier in stormwater, which is really bizarre, right? Because you have, you know, I don't, I don't know what the actual regulation is called out there, but you have the Clean Water Act here. You have all these permits. You know, you spend all this money putting stuff in the ground and making these systems that work, and then you just walk away. 
uh, that, that's not how water treatment works, right? You know, as you said, it's, it's really waste collection, you know, all the pollutants you remove, you have to do something with it. Um, you know, it's the whole idea, right? Um, and so I, I really love the, uh, the nomenclature change. I think, I think simple things like that are huge. You know, just calling it waste collection. I'm probably going to steal that from you, Jeremy. Just let me know. <laughs> no, 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 no. Please do. We've got to. We've all got to change it. Chapter seven in our book is maintenance. It's now going to be waste collection. Boom. And what's called Boom. But I mean, but, but, but seriously, though, I mean, this is how stuff moves forward is, is in conversations like this, yeah. you know, it just happens a couple people at a time. Yeah. And that's another thing, just as, as, you know, just a common regular old guy, you know, a crummy punk rock kid getting into engineering, looking at this stuff and going like, okay, so we have all these regulations. You guys are spending millions, billions of dollars on these treatment systems. And like the whole purpose is to keep the downstream receiving waters clean and free of pollution. You spend all this money, you put this stuff in. And it works for the first year and then you're done. It's, 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 it's mind blowing. I don't know why there hasn't been a focus on maintenance. Well, I, I do know. And this comes back to, <laughs> well, it comes back to resources, you know, and, and folks not, um, not having to do it. As you said, there has to be some sort of driver or incentive. You know, I wish that everyone was an environmentalist and understood, you know, whoever owns, you know, the, the mini mall down the street, you know, and their, and their parking lot. And they're like, Oh my gosh, I need to clean my storm drains and make sure I'm not polluting the river downstream, you know, but that's, that's not how it works. You know, um, God, I, I hate saying this, but it's just it's just true. Um, I, I remember when I was taking the bus to school one time, uh, I literally saw a guy walking down the street with his fast food bag, and he literally just turned it over in the street, dropped it, and kept walking. And like, if the bus wasn't stopped, you know, if the bus wasn't moving, you know, I probably... Craig, <laughs> 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 uh, Genuine <laughs> puck I'm a warrior. <laughs> yeah, yeah. slide, right? But, uh, you know, but most people just don't give a shit. You know, there's a lot of people that really just don't care, you know, and, and, and that's, that's, a, that's a really tough hurdle. And just real quick, not for those folks, you know, like I, I read a really interesting, um, I don't use social media very much, but I do have an Instagram and I, I saw on there, um, it was, it was really weird. Cause it's all like my old punk rock friends and whatever band stuff. And I saw uh, a picture of a fish kill in Oakland. Lake Merritt, there's like massive fish die off, big, big old uh, red tide algae bloom there that was killing off fish. And everyone's like, holy shit. Oh, my God, this is terrible. In the comments of that fish kill thing, it was really interesting because a guy said, yeah, that's great. Whatever. My mortgage is due in three days. You know, you have people you, know, you might want to label as like, uh, you know, oh, you're an asshole. You don't care. You're, you don't care about your rivers and your oceans and whatever. But, you know, I mean, some of these people, you know, you know, people have everyday problems too, you know? And so it's, it's, it's really tough to kind of thread that needle of your everyday man, you know, who's just struggling to put his food on the table, you know, maybe they're having problems at home, you know, to get them to care about this stuff is, is, is really tricky. It's on our leaders, you know, and our, and our governments uh, and honestly just folks like us getting involved in doing something about it because they're failing. Leaders are failing us. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, if everything else wasn't such a mess, it'd be a lot easier to fix this problem, you know, but stormwater is not the only problem we have, you know, and, that, and that's how I always like to, when I talk to people about climate change, which talk about misrepresentation, you know, climate crisis is a much better term for it, right? But, you know, when you start to think about climate crisis and think about even, even just that, I mean, there's multiple fronts, there's multiple issues within climate crisis that are a problem. You know, it's not just, oh, we need to pull carbon dioxide out of the air and sequester it or, you know, uh, get rid of coal firepower plants. It's like, um, yeah, there's like 30 other things wrong because of this. Yeah, and for so, sure. There, there are 30 other things. But as Brad and I and, and, and everyone else at Ocean Tech, we are very focused on obviously the ocean. 
and 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 we we changed our, our, our whole company from uh, you know a stormwater 360 Australia company to Ocean Protect to start that conversation. But to that guy who was worried about his mortgage, well, that's great. But, you know, worry about your mortgage. Mortgages, interest rates going up, and and everyone's feeling that pain around the world. But Mother Nature ain't going to sh- give a shit about your mortgage when you know we destroy the ocean, and then all of a sudden you can't breathe because the ocean's now dead. So you're dead, but you've still got a mortgage. What are you going to worry about? So look, we're very passionate about that. It's stormwater. Is we, we like to say stormwater network is the veins of the land going out to the ocean. As you know, a third of the the air we breathe comes from the ocean. I know everyone's got little personal problems, but this it's it's like when people say, "Oh, climate change, global warming." It's we're burning. It's not warming. We're burning. You know, it's changing that rhetoric to go guys sure there are little problems going on and you know the interest rates going up and whatever mother nature's about had enough and she's telling us through fires and floods and you know in five years time what are, what are the i mean we've had podcast guests on before bradley be after you know climate scientists to go the extreme weather events are going to get more frequent and more extreme more, bigger fires, bigger um, floods. So people will then start to get more and more freaked out. And it's, yeah, sorry, my little rant over. Brad, you got some? hundred percent, Jeremy. I mean, you know, I mean, it's 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 not a pretty picture, you know. Um, I mean, I remember taking my aquatic chemistry class um, with the professor I mentioned before. Um, he literally wrote the book and he was teaching it. Um, and there's literally like one equation that like blew my mind. Um, where he was talking about ocean acidification and uh, I forget the exact equation, but it was, it was basically a, a calcium and how calcium precipitates in the ocean and, you know, not to get too technical for a podcast, but it, no, basically, no, don't, don't. it basically showed that exponentially, you know, as you're tra- starting to change the pH of the ocean, that, um, that calcium can't precipitate out of the water column. And so what that means is that like, you know, all the little critters at the bottom of the, the food chain, you know, the krill and all the tiny guys that have these exoskeletons making using calcium pulling out of the water, they're dead. Uh, they can't, they, they can't make that. And so then you have a full like trophic collapse in the entire ocean where like, you know, basically everything dies because there's no food at the bottom. Um, you know, when you have things like that that are on the table and that's like, you know, we're like maybe, nine years away from that point it's scary you know you have, you have ticking time bombs like methane in the you know the siberian arctic you know uh the ice there's all these things that are happening that are like even just one of these things are like frightening they're terrifying it's like implications but it's it's tough though because it's it's dense technical stuff and it was politicized and you can't even get just like you can't even get people to believe in a measurement that was taken at mount aloha that says hey that's 410 parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere people will be like but wait i saw on the internet you know someone posted you can't even you know you can't even get people to to understand basic technical stuff. So when you start to get into like long-term, like hardcore, like science and math, people can't understand it. And they're just focused on what's in front of them. And then that's a, that's a big challenge, you know, and that's where I throw it back to our leaders and our governments. And, you know, they've done a shit job and no one trusts government. No one trusts our leaders, you know? And so, and so it's, it's really tough to be like, Hey guys, uh, we're driving our car at hundred miles an hour towards a brick wall. We might want to put the gas pedal back on and uh, <laughs> get back in the driver's seat. You know, it's, it's, it's really, tough to do that. I'm going to get on my soapbox for a little bit. So apologies for it. it might sound like a rant. Number one. So, so Jeremy's asking,
question. What should we do? No, so number one, we do need to change the narrative. So we, we talk about a, a lot of environmental problems, as you, you used the term before, Craig, scary, you know, whatever. We need to change that because fear paralyzes action. I, I look at it uh, from a different perspective and go, this is a, a, the, one of the greatest challenges of human history. You know, the human race is facing unprecedented and, I guess, combining uh, environmental you know, challenges and risks, you know, climate change, loss of biodiversity, uh, plastic pollution in our oceans, et cetera. They're all amazing challenges. And what a wonderful opportunity to be in this for the point in time in life on this planet to actually uh, solve those issues. It's like being, I always use the analogy of it's like being standing next to William Wallace on the, on the, on the battlegrounds of Scotland, uh, you know, fighting against the English going, freedom. You're like, yeah, like, I, I want to be there. I want to be there front and center with my face planted blue and picking up the uh, sword and running at those English. So that's my first point. Second point is I feel, I really believe we need to ch- tell our story better. You know, our story is visual. You see the pollution, you see the litter. And the, I get back to my point around who are the influential people on the planet? It's the celebrities who are telling their story and, and making things look cool and whatever. And I feel as though we need to, you know, change the story around. It's scary, whatever, but also, but also focus on the challenges and the potential solutions and the fact that we are all part of the solution, not just pointing the finger of blame at someone else, whether it be government, whether it be Coca-Cola. This, this, the, these challenges will be overcome by us coming together and collectively working together to address those issues as well. In terms of the other third thing I point I'd like to make is that you, you do need to appeal to people's selfish interests. You know, the, the guy who's got his mortgage to pay in three days or whatever, he's concerned about the economic consequences of whatever activities. He doesn't care about orcas, dugongs, macroinvertebrates, et cetera. But I'll, I'll use an example. So even if you, and obviously everyone on this podcast loves the ocean and the waterways and whatever. And, you know, really, you know, their heart bleeds when they see a turtle with a straw up its nose or a, uh, or a whale full of plastic. But I'll give you an example. So, and I, I like to compare Moreton Bay, which is the big waterway downstream of Southeast Queensland and Sydney Harbour, which is the big waterway, most iconic waterway in the world, downstream of basically the Sydney sort of CBD and catchment and beyond. So the primary industry, so commercial fishing in Moreton Bay, roughly, this is, this, these figures are a little bit old, but I'll use them. It's, it's in Moreton Bay, commercial fishing is worth about $1.4 billion a year. Now in Sydney Harbour, it's worth nothing. So that's $1.4 billion that potentially could be made out of Sydney Harbour or, 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 you know, some enormous amount of money that physically can't be taken from Sydney Harbour. Why? It's because Sydney Harbour is so damn polluted, you can't do commercial fishing. So that is a potential economic reality of all our waterways, all our estuarine environments. If we don't appropriately protect our oceans and waterways from pollution, the economic consequences alone are enormous. And you talk about like, climate change, I guess I guess the other thing around storm water pollution is that we often focus on the ecosystem health impacts. Uh, and I mentioned the economic impacts, but I also think we need to bring the narrative towards around uh, focusing on human health. Stormwater pollution is a human health risk. It is a risk to our longevity and our quality of life. And I think that is a similar argument can be made to sort of climate change. So just looking at the World Health Organization stats around climate change, they think by uh, 2030, climate change alone will be contributing to the deaths or, or causing the deaths of approximately quarter of a million people per year and will cost the economy, the planetary economy, around 2 to $4 billion per year by 2030. 
2030. So in terms of human health risks, in terms of economic risks, the implications of climate change are enormous. It's a similar story for stormwater. If we don't manage our waterways and, and oceans and protect them from pollution, the human health and economic consequences of that are enormous. But again, it's a challenge that I believe we can overcome if we work collectively. And what an amazing feeling to be here and say for 20 years' time and go, man, we crushed it. Our waterways and oceans are protected because we, we told our story and we pulled our socks up and worked towards achieving the solution. I love your optimism and I love what you guys do. <laughs> and I love that you guys named your company Ocean Protect. I, I think it's, and I love the movie reference too, because as you were saying that, it was like, yeah, we're in like the most kick-ass movie you've ever seen right now. 100%. Only unfortunately, the editing isn't there and it's really, <laughs> really slow and it's not that exciting of a movie. We are not out there like, brave are like really are like way more dire and serious than that and way more emotional than that but it doesn't play out like that life is not the movies you know and so it's 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 really uh tough to communicate that to, that to folks it is. Um, I, I see where brand's going with this i i do you know you get on the old and get on the old instagram get on to travis and say yeah, 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 it's like, do, you want, do, do you want to come on our podcast i'm actually interested to know that's a good question i actually wanted to know what do your punk rock oh friends and your former colleagues like travis they look at your, your oh, yeah, incredible I, I two other things i wanted to say hold that one real quick brad two real quick things I wish it was true that more people are, this is, this sounds really dark. I'm a positive guy, but I wish it was true that more people dying would affect change. I don't think that that is going to change a goddamn thing. Um, we just saw here with COVID in the United States, how many people died. No one gave a shit. People are wearing no masks. They're coughing on each other. No one cared. You know, we had what over a million, we're past the million mark point in a couple of years. And people just did not give a shit. If it wasn't them and their family, they did not care. So I, I, I just want to say I, I wish and I, I, you know, hope and I wish that what you said is true, you know, and all these people dying and like, oh, my God, this is the people would change. I don't see it. We just we, we just had an experiment on that and it didn't work out so well. <laughs> it, just, it just was a null hypothesis, my yeah, friend. Very cool. But can I tell you on that before we get too doom and gloom? It, I, I'm not saying it's all about the public awareness and, and you know, trying to get people to care. It, there's still a key role for government. And, and, and all I really need to do from my perspective is is regulate and provide some appropriate funding to address this problem effectively. For me, that's an easy win. In the, in the community surveys that we see uh, around the joint, everyone is very concerned. They generally rate it as their number one concern, the protection, the marine and waterway health. And one of their key concerns is litter and microplastics and plastics, et cetera. For my mind, that's that's the vehicle that we use to drive change in this space. The people care and the people care about plastic pollution. Well, let's do, Brad, let's, let's, do some more surveys to find out some updated we'll information yeah. about where people are. It'll be very, very no. It'll be very interesting to go out right now and ask those same questions four years later. We we did a survey four years ago, um, which uh, you know, what are people most concerned about to do with population with, growth? So what, what yeah, with, with significant population, oh, yeah, population growth, population what are your growth. top environmental concerns? And we gave people a list of parking, housing affordability. I wasn't sorry, it wasn't environmental concerns, just general concerns. So parking, uh, jobs, water supply, and marine waterway health. And Jeremy and myself have given the results of this present uh, of this survey ad nauseum to various individuals. And we always say, oh, where do you think? And generally people say, oh, it's traffic or it's housing affordability or it's jobs, all the things you hear in the news. And then we say, oh, where do you think marine waterway health would be on this list of concerns? And they always say, down the bottom, down the bottom. And then we show the results. The number one concern is marine and waterway health. 
the number one concern of this of the Australian, and that's a huge survey, thousand people, all demographics. And that survey was mirrored from a survey done previous. 10 years previous to that. And you guys do have a different different perspective than we do. You know, I mean, a majority of your population is on the coast and has an internet. 90% of the population is living within 10, 10 kilometers of the coast. Yeah, you know, I mean, I know, I know our figures are up there as well. Yeah, majority of our population is on the coast too, but there's a lot in the middle of the country, you know. So back to what we were saying before, you know, people don't have as much of a connection to water here. Yeah, see, I the think you guys is- will be successful first. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> Well, well, here's the hope. But the thing about Australia is there's nothing in the middle. There's yeah. no infrastructure, you know, yeah. whereas the U.S., it's just it's everywhere. infrastructure everywhere, you know. Yeah. Just, I just want to go back to something, and, and Phil, you can try and put this in. I just want to go back to this maintenance thing. Over in the U.S., you've got private and public development. So you'll have, well, I'm asking you, so you've got the private guy, the Walmart that wants to build a Walmart, and they'll put a, 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 a gross balloon trap on there. But then do you have public-owned assets that you guys, you know, let's say, for instance, someone does a subdivision and that asset gets handed over to the the, the local municipality. That happens the same as in here in Australia. Cool. So let me ask you something when we're talking about maintenance. So the city of Portland, do they all drive around in, you know, Portland cars? You know, they've got work vehicles, they've got desks, they've got computers, they've got everything. Now, if you work for the city of Portland and, and you know, your car, you, you'd have to maintain your car, wouldn't you? Because it's an asset of the city of Portland. You know, if your laptop, you, you, know, you can't just break that. My question, going back to that, when, when the city of Portland, and I'll just throw it out there, they might own a billion dollars worth of underground public infrastructure and they don't maintain it. Now, how is that legal? In the United States, when anyone can sue anyone, how is someone not going, hey, guys? That's a great point. And I think a lot of the best work done or a lot of good work is done by a lot of the nonprofits um, that bring this to light. Um, There's one in the Bay Area that I'm a big fan of, Earth Justice, and that's all they do is environmental litigation. Um, You know, and and, and to be clear, you know, that is right. It is, it is totally illegal when people aren't doing stuff like this. I mean, not, not talking about city of Portland specifically, although, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. although no, although they're, they are not off the hook. I don't live in Portland proper, but they did have, they were audited and uh, they wanted to know, Hey, this $12 million a year you're spending on stormwater. How do we know how well it's working? And they were caught a little flat footed. Uh, <laughs> that was, that was, a, that was a big article around here. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's just bringing this stuff to attention, at least on the maintenance issue. You know, but it, com- it comes back to, you know, they don't have the, you know, I think a lot of areas don't have the funding to adequately track and maintain systems, you know, and that comes back to, you know, I mean, the, the, the areas I work with, they're like, yes, we want to be able to check in on all these private developers, you know, really crack crack down on them and make sure they're maintaining their systems and protecting water quality every year, every six months, go along with them inspections. They don't have the manpower. They've got three people working in their office. You know, and so it's 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 really tough. You know, so I think a lot of a lot of the game uh, here in the United States is you know how do we get better like you know maintenance, inspection, and tracking software, and asset tracking, you know, and programs and ways to do this with fewer people. Um, you know, getting into some of the um, some of the sensors. You know, some of the automated sensors I think are going to be a big game changer with that. You know, um, maintenance sensors. I know there's several people in that field out here. Um, I think that will change the conversation, you know, when people can open up their iPad and they can look and, and look at all their assets and be like, heck, this one is clogged, the water level is high, we need to send people out there. I think I think that will be a game changer 
Um, but again, it really comes down to funding and resources. I mean, it is a, a, a problem that needs a lot of resources, you know. We're putting the horse before the cart, Craig. You know, like we've um, we've got a colleague down here at CSIRO that they're really insensitive and I love the work that they're doing. But what use is a sensor when we're not fucking maintaining anything? So I agree. money would come into the local municipalities if they went, right, you've got to clean everything now. Because if you don't, we're going to find you. And going back to it, even when, when you look at the data, and that's wishy-washy, 80% of the pollution in our ocean comes from land, majority from stormwater runoff. Let's just say 60% of it is coming via stormwater runoff. So 60% of our focus should be on stormwater. And yet I'd say it would be 1%, not even. So if we're going to look at the data, we've got to look at all the data and go, we've got to appropriately fund this. So what else are they doing when they say, we just don't have the money to do that? Well, where else are you spending your money? Maybe we should take some money from there and give it to there. I mean, that's... <laughs> it's tough. That's, that's a great question. Uh, the, the ASC report card, infrastructure report card for the United States is like a D on everything. So uh, <laughs> I, know, I know where they're trying to spend their money. Um, you know, I, and, and, and the this, this stuff is tough, you know, like I'm, I'm an optimist at heart, um, you know, it's uh, why I'm here, you know, that's why, why I'm in this field, why, I've, you know, threw my life at this work. Um, you know, but I mean, I wanted to bring it back, you know, before, you know, I, I think it's really tough and simple at the same time, uh, the, the problems that we face, you know, I think, you know, I don't want to talk politics, but I think it's impossible to talk about it without talking about politics. When you have an economic model that's based on constant growth in a finite system, the earth is a closed system that doesn't work. <laughs> you know, you can't just keep growing and growing and growing and growing and producing and producing and producing and producing, uh, you know, at, at the rate that we are and not expect something to happen, you know? And so I feel like, you know, we have to do the work that we're doing. You know, um, I, I, I hate to think about, you know, if none of us were paying attention to stormwater and protecting our waterways, um, I, I hate to think about what it would be like if we didn't have the clean water act, if we didn't have all these devices. It'd be absolutely disastrous. Right. Um, but at the same time, like, I don't think that there's any less people, any more people, how do you put this? I, I think it's just a fundamental problem. Um, you know, I don't think that there's going to be less trash around there. You know, there's, there's certainly not going to be less, uh, trash out there to control. Um, you know, and that, that whole source control problem, if you have, if you have an economic model that's based on constant growth, you know, it, it's going to forever be an uphill battle that we continuously have to fight. And look, and follow, we will. But and obviously, the, we've, we've expressed some of our frustrations about the stormwater industry. But <laughs> on a more positive note, we should celebrate our successes as well. Like oh, yeah. Ocean Protectors, you know, and Contact Engineered Solutions, we put in assets to stop this pollution, and they're really good at doing that. And I think Ocean Protect, we think we stop about around about eight ton on average every day going to Australian waterways. And I think Contact is obviously a, a lot more. Uh, you know, so I take my hat off. Off to the guys at Contact Engineered. And obviously, uh, Craig, you're playing a key role in there in terms of not just designing and, and stalling and, and making sure these assets work properly, but also promoting best practice. And, and you've mentioned a few of the committees you're on, but you are really promoting improved management of stormwater across the US. So in that regard, it's a fantastic thing you've, you've been doing over the over the recent years. And I'm and, um, looking forward to seeing what you do over the next five, 10 years, and hopefully we'll be able to collaborate a bit more. But I'm, I'm just curious to know, what do your punk rock star friends think of you as an environmental engineer? Do they, I'm, I'm curious, what do they think? You know, I wish I could answer that better. I'm kind of a hermit. <laughs> um, I don't know what a lot of people think. Like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of a nerd. I kind of just dug into stormwater um, and I don't keep in touch with too many folks. Um, 
You know, I think, I think the few folks that I have kept in touch with, you know, they're just kind of like, just kind of shocked, like, oh my God, like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, <laughs> how did you go from this, this position to this position, you know? But, um, you know, but, but I think, I think, you know, uh, people that are close to me though, definitely understand like, uh, you know, this, this makes sense. You know, I've always, always been about trying to do something positive, you know, to help people help the environment. And, uh, this is just a really great way to affect the most change for the most people and, and, you know, the uh, biggest area, I guess, of, of influence. And so, yeah, I mean, everyone, everyone thinks it's, thinks it's great, you know, <laughs> go, go, go. Uh, look, from my perspective, Craig, you are much, a much bigger rock star than you ever have been with a guitar in hand. So in that regard, I take my hat off to you. It's a fantastic, uh, it's a fantastic uh, career and, and the work that you do is really impressive. So in that regard, awesome work. Well done. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And likewise, right back at you guys, you know, I think collectively, you know, our two uh, companies that we work for. Yeah. I mean, you, you had an actual figure of tons of pollution that you're keeping out of waterways. I can even begin to, to, um, to think about how much pollution we are actually keeping out of waterways. And that is a fantastic, amazing story to tell. You know, I, I know that, uh, you know, when one of our design engineers left, that was working for 15 years with us. Um, you know, I tried to think about, you know, how many projects that they specifically worked on to make sure that these assets are working right, they're going to be maintainable. It, it's just astounding, you know, thinking about um, how much pollution we're removing and, and, and really just leaving a legacy, um, you know, for our kids and the next generations, right? I'm going back a few moons now, but correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a rock band coming out of the Portland Contact office uh, a while back. I believe it's Jeremiah Lehman. Oh, God. Stormdragon. into this, yeah. Stormdragon. So is Stormdragon making a, a rearing its head again? No, no, it's not. <laughs> no. <laughs> Talk, talk to my book. Yeah. <laughs> but look, Craig, we, we really probably should let you get back to your uh, wonderful. Oh, sorry, we should point out you're actually on vacation. So it has to be said, thank you so much for spending yeah. uh, some time yeah, uh, thanks, out man. of your holiday to talk to us. Uh, it's been a wonderful chat. Again, keep up the great work and look forward to hopefully seeing you in person sometime soon. Absolutely. Hey, guys, thanks. Appreciate the chat. Uh, love to do it again sometime soon. Boom, boom. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.